This is David Nage with my co-host Amanda Frankel. This is Baselayer, where institutional investors learn about crypto. This is David. Welcome back to Baselayer. Before we get into the interview with Andy Bromberg, the president of CoinList, I thought it was interesting to talk about some of the news of the day. We've seen some good news and we've seen some maybe not so great news. Some of the good aspects of what's happened out there, we see Fidelity with their qualified custodial services launching at the end of March towards the beginning of April. This has been a very long undertaking. Uh, They have dedicated a lot of resources to building this out for the institutional investors out there who need a qualified custodian. And I think this is a very positive sign for the market going forward. We had Abra announced the ability to use Bitcoin to invest in stocks and ETFs from anywhere in the world. This is pretty significant innovation happening, providing the ability for investors to move from traditional equities, traditional markets to cryptocurrency. We also saw some of the innovation happening at Maker, and we also saw some of the things that are happening with Augur and Vale with the prediction markets. With Andy, we had a great conversation engulfing what Coinless has done over the last few years. They provide a compliant platform for token sales. Some of the big ones that they've had on there include Filecoin. It was a really interesting conversation to hear Andy talk about things like taxonomy and how he is viewing tokens in the market. As of right now, there's about 2,000. And the ecosystem has had a lot of problems trying to understand what is a security, what is a utility token, what is a work token. Some of those concepts have been floating around. Kyle Samani and others have been using that terminology. And what is a security token? We have had a few people on the show recently talk about STOs. Andy created an interesting matrix, which you can find on his Twitter feed. And in the conversation, we go into a little bit more depth about the philosophy and the methodology that he uses to break that down. We also talk about what he's seeing out there. He's done a lot of traveling, especially to Asia, and he made some interesting observations about the market over there. And lastly, we also talked about some of the things he's reading, and I find it really interesting to hear about what people are reading and how they're actually thinking about the world these days. So with that, I want to remind everyone who's listening that the content of Layer is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any such information or other material as legal, tax, investment, financial, or other advice. On the flip side, you'll hear from our sponsor, and then you'll hear the interview with Andy. Enjoy. The Block is a leading news and information source in the cryptocurrency and blockchain space. The team of experts provides deep, objective research, analysis, and journalism on a daily basis via its website and newsletter. Check out The Block at theblockcrypto.com. This is David, and this is Baselayer. Amanda is on vacation this week. Today, we have Andy Bromberg from Coinless joining us on the show. Andy, how are you doing? Good. How are you doing? Great. 
So Andy and Coinless have been around for a few years now, and Andy has become a trusted person within the space. Um, he has built a, a piece of infrastructure within the crypto asset community that is really important. And so you know, we're really happy to have Andy on the show today. Andy, if you can give a little bit of a, a background about you, about how you came into crypto, more importantly, how you actually uh, dedicated your professional career to crypto and to, and to the asset class, that would be great. Yeah, sure thing. Thanks for uh, thanks for having me. Um, so the backstory on, on me and crypto is that I got, I got into crypto in uh, 2012, 2013. Uh, I was at uh, Stanford studying math and computer science uh, and ended up starting the Stanford Bitcoin group back then, uh, which was led by Balaji Srinivasan, who's now the, the CTO of Coinbase. Um, and there were a bunch of us that, that went and started this group. And at that point, first of all, it was really just Bitcoin that was being talked about. There were a few other coins out there, Namecoin and a couple others. Uh, but it was really just Bitcoin in the space. And, uh, and so we spent a lot of time doing research on on Bitcoin, uh, advocacy work, building some cool projects. Uh, and then we we did that for a couple of years uh, while I was still in school and saw the space start to evolve. And I left school in 2014. And I think the natural thing would have been to go straight into crypto. I had spent a lot of time digging around, meeting people, thinking about the problems. But I didn't do that at the time because I looked at it and said, I can't tell whether or not there's going to be a single crypto asset, Bitcoin, that's going to be it, it's the end of the story, or if there's going to be many of them. And anything I could think of working on relied on the outcome of that, what I saw as a coin flip. So everything I could think of either relied on the idea of there being only Bitcoin or there being many tokens in the future. And I looked at it and said, if I'm going to go into a startup, uh, it's already hard enough to do a startup. The failure rate's already high enough. I don't want to add a coin flip, you know, existential uh, a decision there right at the beginning. And so I went and started a different company in the media space and then uh, came back to crypto. I think that that decision has been has been uh, made that there are going to be more than one uh, more than one crypto assets out there. And uh, and back in uh, in 2017, um, Coinlist was just getting started. Uh, and uh, and Coinlist originally was a collaboration between Protocol Labs, who built Filecoin and AngelList. And it was built just to run the Filecoin token sale. And then as part of that process, everyone realized, wow, this is really hard uh, to run a token sale. It's a lot of work, a lot of legal work, a lot of product work. Every single token issuer is going to need to do this. And so this should be a new independent company. And so CoinList spun out from AngelList in, uh, in fall of 2017. Uh, and I came in as, as one of the founders to, uh, to start and run that new uh, independent company. So on CoinList, you guys say that this is the trusted platform for running compliant token sales. Talk to the listeners about what that means and what that entails. Sure thing. So, and it really all starts with Filecoin is the first one that we ran. Uh, CoinList now offers a, a variety of services, but the core one, the marquee one that we're most known for is, is helping to facilitate these token sales. And a couple of pieces go into that. One is there's just a lot of logistical work that goes into a token sale. So that's things like the compliance due diligence, meaning the KYC, the AML, the accreditation due diligence, whatever is relevant for that specific sale. Doing all of that, supporting the investors, the transaction processing, the document signing, all of that back and forth. And then we have a community um, that we we can expose um, to these to these token sales as well. Uh, and so we've gone and we've helped with publicly some of the really what we see as some of the highest quality issuers in the space. So publicly, we've worked with Filecoin, Blockstack, Props, Origin, Trust Token. Um, on their sales, and then privately, dozens and dozens more. Uh, and it really centers around handling the logistics of the sale, and then in certain cases, also uh, exposing our community to the opportunity. But on top of that, 
uh, we now have, have new services around airdrops and helping to host online hackathons, all things that we could talk more about. But our focus now is really on bridging the gap from helping with capital formation, helping these issuers raise money and facilitate those sales. And then the second pillar of our business is around building community for these issuers and helping them uh, scale up and actually think about going to market. So I think that leads us into one of the first questions that we had talked about. What do you think about the current trends in crypto capital raising? Does it seem concentrated in private sales? Is there a private market and a public market? And kind of what is the relationship there? And in terms of the ICO market, we saw that obviously become quite hot at the end of 2017 and and, uh, into the first part of 18. We've seen it started to dampen. Uh, to put it mildly. So what are your what are some of your opinions on the, the trends that we're seeing right now in capital raising? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think first of all, you know, there was this crazy hype cycle, as you, as you pointed out, in 2017 and early 2018. And it really took a dive. But what we saw was that the what really happened was the bottom of the market dropped out. So there were a lot of low quality issuers, a ton of them, probably the majority of the space. And uh, they dropped out of the market once the, the market went down. And the high quality issuers have stayed there. So we're still seeing just as many high quality opportunities as we were before. Uh, and that's something that's really exciting to us. I think more of the fundraising has started to concentrate in private sales rather than public sales. Uh, and I do think the dynamics are changing there. But at the same time, there are a bunch of uh, really strong public sales that will go out in the first half of this year now that the market stabilized a little bit. Um, and that's something that we expect to continue. So I think. Uh, we're reaching more of an equilibrium now between the private sales and the public sales. And they're they're good for different stages of an issuer, right? At the very early stage, I think it is better for issuers to raise money privately and have just a few really strong value-add investors on their you know, so-called cap table, on their token table, um, uh, to, to start to help them out and scale up. And then at some point, as they're actually thinking about going to market and launching their network, that's when it makes more sense to do a public sale to get that distribution in addition to the capital. Um, but certainly, I think it, you know, seeing more of these private sales and seeing the smaller rounds that people are doing sequentially as they hit new milestones uh, is something that makes a lot of sense to me. And I expect to, uh, to continue going forward. So that leads me into something that we didn't necessarily kind of anticipate, but I think this is an interesting question as you've seen so much. So, in a token sale in terms of governance, for an institutional investor like a family office, which obviously uh, myself and Amanda came from, um, talk to us about governance as it relates to token sales and what is the the structure and the dynamics there. Right. Interesting question. I think there's two layers to governance in this space. One is uh, governance of the networks themselves. And the second is governance of the issuers who tend to be corporations uh, that are working on the initial development of the networks. Uh, so touching on each of those, I think that the on-chain governance or the, the network governance um, is a really, I would say, new area that people are starting to explore more meaningfully and thinking about how decisions will be made on these decentralized networks going forward. Um, that's something that I think is in its, its pretty early days. There are a lot of interesting experiments going on there, but um, I don't know that there are any best practices currently set out. But that has less to do with the sale itself. That's more about the network being live and how uh, changes will get made on that network going forward. I think probably the more interesting question right now for you know institutional investors as they invest in these offerings is around the the governance of the issuer that uh, they are writing checks to. So you know the way this this tends to work is that an issuer runs a a token sale, and when we say token sale, we usually mean something like a SAFT sale. 
So buying into a security, SAF stands for Simple Agreement Future Tokens, so whether it's that or something similar, buying into a piece of paper that gives a right to tokens in the future. And in exchange for uh, that piece of paper, they send money to the issuer, the corporation that is building out the initial version of the network, and eventually they will get tokens back out when the network launches. Um, this looks a lot like an investment in an early stage startup, but it's different because typically there are not the same governance uh, provisions that are in you know, a seed round or a series A round that's actually equity in the company and you're not actually buying shares. You're not becoming a shareholder of that issuer, you're becoming a token holder of that network. And so very often there's very limited governance uh, rights associated with these early stage token investments because it's just you're not becoming a shareholder of the company. And in theory, the company will become a less and less important part of the network going forward. What I will say is there's been some backlash here because there have been issuers that have spent those funds irresponsibly or done things that were inadvisable. And a lot of people point to the fact that they may have had no formal governance set up from investors or independents on their board or anything like that. And so what we're seeing more and more is that for the earliest stages of raising capital, these token issuers are actually uh, doing equity offerings and doing what looks like a more traditional seed or series A offering where the investors are buying into the company. They sometimes get board seats, they get you know governance provisions, and then at some point they run token sales and the network launches as well. And that I think makes a lot of sense. It looks a lot more like how traditional companies raise money and start to build out uh, their, their companies. And uh, that's another trend that I would expect to uh, strengthen over the coming year. You read my mind. I was talking to a fellow institutional investor today just about that, talking about the the change from pure token sales that we saw in ICOs to things that are much more typical that myself and other investors would see in that type of a more kind of categorically almost a venture investment where you get equity, but then there's conversion rights. And so do you, do you see that kind of as the theme for 2019 to 20? Is that kind of what we're going to be seeing for the next few years? Or do you think there's going to be some new kind of iteration around the ICO model um, as it relates to regulatory issues here in the United States? Uh, yeah, I feel like a, a reasonable steady state for the next couple of years would be that a typical issuer, and of course, everyone is an exception and everyone does things a little bit differently, but the average issuer would do one or maybe two equity rounds or you know convertible notes convertible into equity but more traditional venture style financing uh, at the early days and then perhaps a private uh, token sale maybe a second private token sale and then at some point a public token sale to the broader community uh, and that seems like a pretty natural progression for an issuer to go through and so we're talking a lot about the United States right now we're not necessarily you know talking about global and APAC is much different the market in China and in Japan and in Korea has been very different than in the United States. From your perspective and where you sit right now, can you talk to us a little bit about the global investor, especially uh, in, in the region around the Asia Pac Ream? Yeah, absolutely. It's, it is a very different environment over there. Uh, regulations, different people's inclinations uh, about what to invest in are very different. Uh, and even there, uh, you know, I just spent a few weeks in around Asia and it is interesting the ecosystems in the different countries are wildly different from each other so korea is different from japan is different from mainland china is different from hong kong is different from singapore um and they all have their own uh quirks and and uh, and types of investors and types of projects uh so a really varied environment i think the 
overall picture is uh, fairly similar around how people are thinking about structuring these rounds and getting involved. But the types of projects they're investing in can be very different. Um, and also some of the regulation is different, of course, uh, which leads to uh, some different requirements. But you know, ultimately, and this is part of you know, what Coinless does and, and where we see our value, we handle a lot of these regulatory issues for token issuers so that they don't need to figure out how to do the appropriate compliance due diligence on every uh, country and every single investor. Um, I see that as a little bit of an implementation detail. So exactly who you're allowed to let invest and and exactly what the process looks like for those people investing, to me, is less important than the holistic structuring of the sale and the overall intentions of what the issuer is trying to do there. Uh, and so I, I think broadly, we're seeing token sales look pretty similar, no matter where they are in the world, um, with, with some minor differences. But much more interesting is the different types of projects that we're seeing in different areas and, and what types of things investors are uh, positively inclined to invest in. So we just saw a pretty significant token sale with Binance and BitTorrent the other day. What kind of you know risks to the, the, the facilitators of that token sale do you see? Or is there anything that could be mitigated? Do you see that as you know, something that is a remnant of 2017 into 18, the way that they did it? Or do you see the way that they did that particular token sale as something that could be replicated? Uh, yeah, I think, you know, listen, at the end of the day, it, it depends on every issuer and every platform's individual risk tolerance and where they think the lines are going to be drawn. You know, it is a lot of gray areas and blurry lines and uh, and hard to say exactly how things are going to work. You know, CoinList, we tend to lean towards the most conservative stance we possibly can. Um, and, you know, we think the space is going to be around for a long time. And the best way to make sure that we're around for a long time and also build a really compelling brand is to take conservative stances on things and make sure that you know, we feel 100% confident that we're doing things in a, a compliant uh, and legal fashion. Um, other people are willing to take more risks. Um, and uh, and that's also a totally viable business strategy, just not one that, that we've happened to take. Um, I think the Binance uh, and, uh, and BitTorrent token sale is really interesting. You know, one note is that, you know, the Binance Launchpad product doesn't allow U.S. investors nor several other jurisdictions. Right. Um, and so that's one way for them to get a little bit more comfort that by avoiding jurisdictions that have particularly stringent rules, um, you can uh, you can make yourself a little bit safer. Um, but uh, but it also comes with the downsides of missing those capital sources and and uh, you know not being able to to access those markets. So you know it's always a game of trade offs and pros and cons. And for us, it's just a matter of saying we want to support as many investors and as many issuers as we can, but in a way where we feel totally confident that we are being compliant and not having issues. Um, and that leads to a different strategy than a lot of other issuers and a lot of other platforms. So another topic that you uh, tweeted about, and by the way, anyone who's listening to this should definitely be following Andy. He provides some really great content on his Twitter feed. Um, you provided a matrix on the taxonomy of crypto assets. And this has been something that I've talked about a lot. Amanda's talked about a lot. I know a lot of people have been trying to figure out the taxonomy. So we're at around 2000 tokens and we're trying to figure out what is what, what is utility, what is security. And you came up with a matrix for some sort of uh, an iteration on what you thought about the future of taxonomy of crypto could be. Talk to us a little bit more about what went into that and kind of the the throughput that you actually came out with. Yeah, sure thing. I think uh, it came the the origin of that for me was 
uh, and as, as many ideas come from a disagreement with the way that people typically talk about the taxonomy. So I think the most common thing that you hear when you, you know, people are talking about types of tokens is security token, utility token, tokens that are securities, tokens that are non-securities. And, and for me, that sure is a reasonable divide of two categories of tokens. And yes, encompasses everything, things that are securities and things that are not securities necessarily, you know, encompasses every token. But it's, it's not really sufficient for me to properly describe these tokens. And the analogy I use sometimes there is that it's a little bit like talking about websites and saying, well, of course, we've got regulated websites and we've got unregulated websites. And within each of those categories, there are a million different types of websites, right? On regulated websites, you can have websites that sell guns or sell alcohol or sell or, you know, or gambling sites. Those are all regulated websites, but have very different businesses and, and look very different from each other. And then non-regulated websites, the whole category of those that are very different. And so I look at that divide and say, sure, you can divide all websites into regulated or non-regulated, but that's not really sufficient to describe what's going on there. And I think the security token, utility token, or security token, non-security token uh, dichotomy is it falls into that same area where it is correct, but not sufficient. And so I thought about taking it just a step further. And you know, I should preface this by saying, I think the taxonomy I'm about to describe is probably incomplete. And I also think that it's going to change a lot over the coming years. But right now, the way I see it uh, is in this kind of two by two matrix. And this is a little, little bit hard uh, just on audio. Uh, but two by two matrix, you can imagine one axis being security, non-security, and the other axis being the source of value um, of the token being either from the real world or from token networks. And so you end up getting these four different specific types of tokens um, when you when you kind of put that two by two matrix together. So where I think the space all started was in tokens that were intended to be non-securities and got their value from the real world. And that quadrant of the two by two matrix is a store of value token. So something like Bitcoin, right? Where the token not intended to be a security uh, and it gets its value not from activity on the network, the transactions happening on the Bitcoin network aren't what actually, you know, gives it its value. It's the inflows and trust. So the, the real world effect on the network, the traditional world effect of the network is what gives it its value. So that's where we started. Then the space moved to this adjacency, um, which is still intended to be non-securities, but instead of getting their value from the, the quote unquote real world, they get their value from token network activity. And so that is what we call protocol tokens or network tokens. That was a lot of the, the you know, 2016, 2017, 2018 boom was around these protocol tokens or network tokens, where again, not intended to be securities, but they get their value from token network activity. And you know, a good example of these is kind of work tokens. So tokens that involve staking, and as a right, you know, result of staking the token, you get a right to cash flows on the network in some sense. Uh, and so that's where the space went. Uh, now I'll stop there for a second. What's interesting is the fourth quadrant, which I'll get to, is tokens that get their value from the real world and are intended to be securities. So, so a little bit different. They're intended to be securities. They get their value from the real world. And those are asset-backed tokens. So things like a real estate-backed token or a startup equity-backed token. And I look at those, I think they're really interesting. And a lot of people talk about making the jump now from protocol tokens to these asset-backed tokens, because that's what people often are thinking about when they think about security tokens. I think that jump is really hard to make because it requires shifting on both of the axes. It requires shifting from 
non-securities to securities at the same time you're shifting from the source of value of these protocol tokens being network activity to real world activity and so i think that means a very different type of investor these asset backed tokens have a wildly different risk reward profile than protocol tokens do and so we need to change both the kind of infrastructure and and procedures for these tokens because they'd be securities instead of non-securities plus we would need to change the investor community because it would be a very different investor base than for protocol tokens so instead, I think what this two by two matrix opens up is this possibility that there's actually a bridge to get there, which is this third quadrant where the token is intended to be a security, but it gets its value from token networks. And that means it's very similar to these protocol and network tokens. They both get their value from token networks. It's just a different type of infrastructure that's needed to issue them and trade them and custody them. And that category is, is what I call profit tokens. Um, so profit tokens are, are tokens where, again, they're intended to be a security, but their value comes from activity on a token network. Uh, and so one example of this is uh, the blocks route token, which we could talk about. Um, you know, there are certain stable coins that have an associated uh, security token that gets its value from uh, token network activity. But this to me feels like a much more natural segue from, uh, from protocol tokens because it's the same type of investor base. It's the same source of value. And what the profit token wave, which I think will happen this year and next year, will force us to do in the industry is build this infrastructure for issuing, trading, and custodying uh, security tokens, because those are securities. And then once that happens, then the path to asset-backed tokens is much easier, because the infrastructure for security tokens will already be there. All we need to do as a community is bring in this new investor base that's interested in the investment profile of these asset-backed tokens. And so I think that's the way this industry is going to move. Store value tokens first. Then we transition to protocol tokens. Then we're going to transition to, to these profit tokens. And then last of all, uh, these asset-backed tokens. Um, and that's that's how I see it evolving over the next few years. So you touched on this. You brought this up a few times. The infrastructure. The infrastructure for security tokens. What is the actual infrastructure that's needed to be put into the market that's not currently or what needs to be bolstered that is currently in the market? What is the infrastructure needs currently right now for STOs? Yeah, I think two of the, the key pieces are one, uh, effective and meaningfully used and liquid secondary trading platforms and secondary trading venues for these security tokens. Um, so you hear a lot of talk about ATSs, alternative trading systems, and and you know ways that you could allow for a secondary trading of these assets, but that's critical. And the existing exchanges um, are by and large not set up to support the trading of security tokens. So that's one big piece. And then the second is effective and compliant custody solutions for uh, these security tokens, um, which also requires some some guidance, I think, from the regulators. Um, but uh, but more broadly, I think is something that that just needs to be built. So oh yeah, I would point to. A lot of little pieces, but the two biggest ones to me are the the secondary trading and the custody. So, with Fidelity coming online, hopefully in the next few months, and with Bitco and some of the other players, talk to more about custody because I feel like we've been talking about custody for a pretty, you know, <laughs> relatively speaking. Yeah, it's only been in the last twelve months or so, but we've been talking about custody almost every day for the last twelve months. What are your what are you seeing on the custody side that's getting you uh, kind of excited? Yeah, I think all of that, you know, and and to be clear, I think those two pieces, the trading and the custody, they are both being built by excellent teams. Uh, it's just a matter of time. Uh, but uh, but it, there are not a lot of great uh, custody solutions out there today. I'm very optimistic in the coming months or year, 
uh, there will be a slew of options for people to choose from. Um, and so, yeah, I, it, it feels like an inevitability. It's just something that, that needs to happen. And more talking about STOs, um, do you feel that we, it seems there's been a pivot, you know, ICO mania, <laughs> if you want to call it that in, you know, 2017 and 18, you know, we had that kind of hype cycle um, and with the promise of Ethereum and the promise of building dApps on Ethereum, everyone got very excited. And now it seems that everyone's saying to your point, you know, okay, I have a real asset, whether it's a, you know, an ownership in a GP, which as a family office investor, other people know this, that when you are, you know, an LP into a GP and it's year three or four and there might be a liquidity need and you have some chips on the table there, you might want to try to take them off and you go to a secondary broker and they take advantage of that situation. So I personally have said this before that I think that's a big place uh, where a lot of that activity would happen with STOs. We've seen a few deals on the real estate side. You know, what is, do you feel that we're, do you feel that we're over promising on STOs right now? Because the infrastructure, you know, as you said, is not necessarily there yet. Do you think we need to just think, maybe take a pause on pushing STOs till we get the infrastructure right this time? Like we needed to do with ICOs? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I think, first of all, I would divide STOs into these profit tokens uh, and and these asset-backed tokens, which I see as different. They're both securities, um, but you know, one of them is asset-backed, the other is, is gets its value from network activity. I think uh, certainly the infrastructure needs to get built out, but this is where my thesis around profit tokens first, asset-backed tokens second comes into play, because I think even if the infrastructure, even if we could wave a magic wand and have all the infrastructure exist tomorrow. I don't think the investors are there. I don't think the the buy side interest is there for these asset backed tokens right now. And so I think first what we need to see is this wave of, of profit tokens that look a lot more like protocol tokens, but are, you know, do encourage this development of the security token infrastructure. And then once that happens, we'll be able to expand, bring in, you know, new categories of investors into the space uh, and uh, and see these asset backed tokens flourish. But you know, I think the, in my opinion, the the asset back token, you know, wave is a little bit overstated or premature right now. I think it'll be a little bit before there's significant, uh, you know, there's there's real markets for these. There is, from what I've seen, a lot of supply side interest, assets that want to be tokenized, um, and pretty minimal demand side interest, investors that want to buy into those assets. So we're not ready to tokenize the world yet. Um... Not yet, but it's coming. <laughs> You know, I think another thing that we didn't necessarily talk about before, but this just kind of came into my mind and something I've been thinking about a lot, too. And I know Amanda has as well. Are we have we been building platform and product within crypto that doesn't necessarily have a demand? You just alluded to obviously the institutional demand for STOs is not there yet. And are we looking are we building things that don't have a demand or are we not educating the investor base properly that these things could and will exist and that it could solve a problem that we believe that they have? You know, it's it's always a little bit of a chicken and egg problem. You rarely get the product to launch at the exact same moment that investor demand comes in. Right. Uh, and so, you know, at some level, you are either going to build product prematurely and then go out and seek demand, or you're going to have significant demand and then go and build product to support that. Um, I think crypto's leaning in general is more towards the building product before there is demand and then spinning up demand afterwards. And part of it is the ecosystem is heavily concentrated towards builders. 
and historically has not been highly concentrated in marketers and, and uh, you know, other folks that actually uh, drive that demand. And so I think it's, it's just a, a different modality, but I don't know that that's uh, necessarily a horrible thing. It's helpful to have all these products out there that we can then go and uh, go and sell to investors. Um, but I don't think the moment that these products exist, there is a lot of pent up demand ready to uh, ready to buy into it. I would agree with that. I think that we haven't had that that pinnacle moment where people and we talked to a few people about this on on the show that some people believe that we need to have a negative catalyst that something bad has to happen within legacy systems, centralized authorities or technologically centralized authorities. Something bad needs to happen for people to say, my goodness, we need to really look at new systems and new operating models. And so, you know, I think we're in a wait and see on that. But I think, you know, I, I agree with you on that. And so I think the last question on STOs is, you know, kind of the news out of Wyoming and Caitlin Long. What do you think about what Wyoming was able to do in terms of issuance of uh, digital securities there? Yeah, you know, I think every step uh, is a good one here. And uh, and they've they've clearly put a lot of, of time and effort and thought into that process. Um, I think it's it is helpful to have that stuff laid out in advance of both building and selling to investors um, because the the regulatory arrangement is is a prerequisite for both of those things. You've got to know the thing that is required to build and you've got to know how to sell it to investors in a compliant way. Uh, and so I think that's really helpful. You know, I think naturally I would like to see that sort of regulation of those sorts of ideas get expanded to, um, you know, more common jurisdictions whether that's uh, you know just talking about the U.S., whether that's you know federally writ large, or um, you know places like California, New York, and Delaware um, that you know have the majority of company formation and capital formation, uh, and so uh, but I think having a model there in Wyoming is incredibly powerful, and it's something that you can point to when you're talking to regulators or legislators and say, listen, this is how they did it. Uh, let's think about how we can do something similar, and uh, and so I think that it's, it's a really powerful precedent. So switching gears to Ethereum, uh, we had Spencer Noon on last week talking about Ethereum scaling and the competition among smart contract platforms. You at CoinList are probably uh, purview to a lot of different opportunities that are coming along, people and companies and projects that want to raise compliantly on your system. What are you seeing in terms of Ethereum scaling? Um, what were the kind of comments or what were the things that you guys were talking about in terms of content to Noble being delayed to the end of February and some of the things that we're seeing in terms of ZK Snarks entering to Ethereum. What are some of the things that you're thinking about in terms of Ethereum scaling and some of the, the platform developments there? Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. I think what we've seen is this, uh, you know, Ethereum obviously was, was very early and then this boom and other layer one uh, protocols and smart contract platforms uh, getting up to speed. And a lot of them I think are going to launch this year. So I think there's going to be real competition, which I see as a very good thing for the ecosystem that, uh, you know, these, these projects will be forced to execute and innovate uh, and, uh, and build up market share. Um, yeah, I think the, the Constantinople uh, delay, uh, no, one, no one was happy with, uh, with that and, uh, and how that process happened and, and the mistake found there. Um, so I think that was, that was sad for everyone involved. Um, but they're pushing forward and, and it doesn't seem like the, the asset has been uh, significantly impacted in the public sphere as a result of that. Um, so it's you know it's good efforts all around. I think a lot of these different platforms have very different uh, strategies around what they're building, how they're building it, how they're going to go to market. 
and I'm very excited for the field to get a little bit more crowded publicly in, in the next 12 months and start to see that competition, you know, weed out the weak and, and make the strong ones uh, really execute on what they're trying to do. Now, without naming names, as I said, you at CoinList are probably seeing you're getting, you know, hit with a lot of different folks, a lot of projects that want to, you know, raise compliantly on on the CoinList. Without naming names of specific projects, what are some of the projects that you're seeing come across? What are what some of the things that they're trying to address? Is it interoperability? Is it file storage, like Filecoin? What are some of the the the, the types of projects that you're seeing address what type of uh, focuses on the market? Uh, yeah, there's there's a lot of different ones. I think people talk a lot about uh, scalability, um, and uh, and that's just you know. A, incredibly common thing that people are trying to address. So I think that's a big one. Um, you know, on the on the privacy side, there's a lot of people working on different types of privacy coins. And certainly we saw Beam and Grin uh, launch this month um, with, with certain pieces. Uh, and, uh, and so that's interesting. People trying to avoid trusted setup, people trying to, you know, build different uh, degrees of privacy. Um, you know, the smart contract languages, people competing on, you know, what language the smart contracts and the platform are actually written in. Uh, and and how to make that really easy and and scalable, um, you know, a lot of different ideas out there, and you you hear some of the big names on the on the layer one side, obviously Ethereum, and you got Polkadot, and you've got Definity, and you've got Thunder and Avalanche, and you know all these different tokens, and uh, and they've all just got different strategies around what they're building and different technical innovations that they've uh, that they've put together, um, and so again, yeah, just excited to see them start to launch and see them actually figure out their go-to-market strategies uh, in the coming year. So as we wrap up, one of the things that we've liked to do recently is trying to get a little bit of who is Andy? Um, and so what makes you tick, what you're reading, what kind of music you're listening to? I think it helps, you know, it was Peter McCormick, I think, at what Bitcoin uh, did was on Twitter a few weeks ago, and he kind of asked, what's your favorite band or what's your you know, top favorite uh, bands? And just seeing the inflow of people's thoughts about some of the, the bands that they liked and some of the music that they liked, I think it's really telling about someone's personality. Um, if they listen to, like, death metal, <laughs> that's uh, it's pretty interesting for listening to you know classical music or if they're listening to electronica um and so i think it's an interesting way just to see how you you know think so if you could um you know maybe give a book recommendation something that you've read recently that really resonated with you that would be great yeah book recommendation that's interesting uh there's a lot maybe i'll give you a couple if that if that sure. doesn't violate the parameters of the question not at all one i think particularly relevant to crypto there's been some really good books about frauds recently and telling the stories of of frauds at some level and you know the the process of detecting them and and uh, and solving them uh, and i think a couple on that front that i really enjoyed one bad blood um the the theranos uh story mm -hmm. uh, was really interesting and then similarly a uh, billion dollar whale about the one mdb malaysian sovereign wealth fund uh saga from uh, from last year both of those were, were really interesting and and fascinating to read to see how frauds are perpetuated in uh in in the current day and then uh, on a different note i was i read a lot of science fiction i think it's just such a powerful medium for uh conveying ideas about how the world and people interact with each other but in these really pure fictionalized formats and so a couple recently that i really enjoyed um were uh lord of light was really really good um 
and uh, another one that was great was uh, was Red Mars. Um, so that's that's four. That's uh, it's four times what you asked for. But frauds and science fiction are, are both uh, topics of interest recently. That's amazing. Um, and then you know, kind of on that music side, I don't know if you're a big music person, but you know, if there is a band that you can go see, you know, next week that either is a, a new band or, you know, a historical band. If there was someone that you could go see play music next week, who would it be? Yeah, I've seen in the past couple of years, my two most most common uh, shows I've been to are uh, Odessa and uh, and Big Gigantic, both kind of like uh, EDM style, but a little bit more musical um, that, I, uh, that I've seen a lot in the past past couple of years. Nice. That is uh, that was unexpected. But you see, this is why we ask those questions. Yeah. <laughs> So a little EDM, a little bit of, uh, you know, sci-fi, and uh, that's how you get Andy Bromberg at CoinList. That's great. Um, so this is great, Andy. I really appreciate, you know, hopefully you'll be able to come back in a few months and give us an update on what you're seeing at CoinList and how we're, you know, proceeding forward with ICOs and capital raising, STOs, and all that good stuff. Again, this was Andy Bromberg at CoinList. And uh, if, Andy, for the listeners, if there's a way that they can find you or CoinList, where do you want people to go? Uh, yeah, I'm on, on Twitter, Andy underscore Bromberg, uh, and CoinList is uh, coinlist.co. And uh, yeah, we'd love to hear from any of you. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Andy. This layer, this layer, this layer.